Good evening. Um, my name is Robert Buckingham and I'm the creative director of M Pavilion. And on behalf of Naomi Milgram and the Naomi Milgram Foundation, um, we'd like to welcome you to this evening's conversation um, or questioning, questioning of Tom Bloxham. Um, I'd like to firstly acknowledge uh, the original owners on the land on which we meet, the Boonarong people, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and into the future. Um, this is a lovely evening. Um, Amanda Levite, who designed M Pavilion, came to Melbourne several times and, of course, it never rained. So <laughs> she felt that um, uh, the building, of course, didn't need walls. Um, and in many respects, it's a very beautiful building um, because it's so open. Um, tonight, we have the experience of having a little bit of rain and it's working beautifully. Uh, so Tom, who's a friend of Amanda, can report back to her that A, it does rain in Melbourne, and B, that the roof doesn't leak. <laughs> so um, I'd also like to um, say how delighted we are to be working with the University of Melbourne um, uh, on this, um, this talk. Um, the University of Melbourne have brought Tom to Australia and uh, have organised for him to come and speak to you tonight. So I'd like to introduce Professor... Uh, Alan Pert. Tom, do you want to join us? <laughs> well, thank you everyone for coming along on what is traditionally a very Scottish summer night. Um, <laughs> Um, I've been getting text messages all day from people saying, is this, still, this event still on? <laughs> Which is the wrong thing to be asking a Scotsman, I think, when, uh, who's been living with us for 40 years, this kind of weather. Um, now, um, I'd like to say a big thank you to Naomi and Robert for all the support um, putting the event on tonight. It was really uh, a fantastic opportunity for us to extend Tom's... Um, lecture which he gave on Thursday night up at the faculty and it was quite an incredible lecture for anyone who who saw it anyone who didn't see it we have recorded it and it will be going live in the next couple of weeks um, you really need to take some time to to to, to watch it <laughs> it's um, a kaleidoscopic tour through um, 22 years of the work of urban splash and it was 400 slides delivered in just under 60 minutes so it's it's quite an event um, now, um, importantly, to introduce Tom, I mean, to deliver Tom's bio would probably take me the full 60 minutes, um, and you're all um, with the opportunity to go online and, and, and see the wealth of Tom's experience in Urban Splash's role in development in the UK over the last 22 years. Importantly, Tom moved to Manchester from, uh, from London to study politics and history. Um, he went on to sell records and posters as a student, um, and from there he established and subs subsequently sold a local radio station as well as the Barbar venue hire chain. It was when Tom turned 30 in 1993 with um, Jonathan Falkenham that he established Urban Splash, and really what's happened since then is quite an incredible story which we'll, we'll touch on tonight. Um, importantly, um, in 1999, at the age of 36, Tom was awarded an MBE for his services to architecture and urban regeneration. In the same year, he was awarded the Ernst & Young National Young Entrepreneur of the Year. 
Importantly as well, he's been chairman of Urban Splash. Tom is also chair of the Manchester International Arts Festival and a trustee of the Manchester United Foundation Charity and the Bloxham Charitable Trust. In 2009, he was appointed by the Prime Minister as a trustee of the Tate, and he's also governor and founder of New Islington Free School. Previously, Tom was also the Chancellor of the University of Manchester from 2008 to 2015 and founding chair of the Centre for Cities Think Tank. And he's also director of Liverpool's Capital of Culture Company and chair of Arts Council England North West, a trustee of the Big Issue in the North and a member of the government's Property Advisory Board and Urban Sounding Board. And then in 2014, he was a commissioner for the Lions Review on Housing. So a wealth of um, <laughs> expertise. Um, now... What happened um, on Thursday is that the lecture, we didn't have a Q&A. We asked people to, to hold over um, and email me questions, um, send them through Twitter. So I've collected a number of questions that I want to pose to Tom tonight. Um, but importantly, it's really, we really want to engage the audience. So importantly, we want to bring people into the conversation. It's not all about Tom and myself. We really want to touch on issues that are relevant to, to Melbourne and Australia. Um, but I really want to just to start by talking about my experience of, um, I mean, I graduated in, in Glasgow back in the tail end of 93, 94. Um, and it was a time where we were hearing huge discussion about grand visions for the city and grand master plans. Um, constantly seeing documents being produced, um, talking about these 25-year visions for the city and the transformation of the city. But interestingly, what was happening on the ground was a transformation at a very small scale. And in particular in Glasgow, the major transformation that happened back in 1991 was with a bar. And interestingly, it was designed by um, Ben Kelly, a designer who had emerged out of Manchester, um, more famously known for the, for the Hacienda, which was designed in 1982. The Tom, someone who started off life um, with bars. Um, in bars. In bars, yeah. Um, but I think, importantly, the music scene, that wider cultural um, agenda that was going on in cities back in the tail end of the 80s and early 90s. What was going on in terms of music, in terms of art, um, that, that social scene, I think, is something that probably had a huge impact on Urban Splash. And it'd be great just to hear more about that. I mean, what's your perception of the Grand Master Plan, something we still live with in our cities and the role of small-scale incremental change? I mean, I mean, the story for me was I came to Manchester in um, 19... 83 um, as a student didn't really know Manchester and um, I'm a very lucky guy and I found myself in an amazing city at an amazing time and there was sort of a renaissance going on in Manchester and at the time Manchester was a post-industrial city the industry that made Manchester famous and rich had collapsed the textile industry um, literally 200 people lived in Manchester city centre uh, when I arrived there you couldn't buy a pint of milk there wasn't a doctor's, there wasn't a dentist. Shutters came down at night at five o'clock and everybody fled to the suburbs and businesses were moving out and opening up in business parks in the south of the city and people who could were moving away, further and further away from the city centre. But the same time as that happening, there was a burgeoning renaissance led really by creativity. Um, the Hacienda opened, I think, the year I arrived in Manchester. There were a number of bands, there were a number of designers, um, we worked with, on our first scheme with um, Ian Simpson and Rachel Huff, um, very early scheme of theirs. And I sort of saw something with this burgeoning um, creative talent going on. My mates were architects, were musicians, were in bands, were designers. 
and perhaps luckily for me, I had no talent to do any of those things. And um, but I, what I did see is all these empty spaces, and you'd walk around Manchester, and the ground floor would often be occupied, but the upper floors were totally empty, and um, there were a number of creative industries who were looking to um, want space. And at that time in England, the conventional property industry was talking about 25-year leases, and the people I knew were sort of thinking about a one-week space or a one-month space. And so we started, first of all, renting and then buying um, properties, filling the properties with indoor markets, with um, creatives on very flexible, very easy terms, very basic space, actually. But it began to work and it began to create a culture. You know, Ben Kelly that you mentioned, I saw he opened Dry Bar in Manchester, and that was very important for me. And I spent a fair bit of time in there and saw that. And we did a similar thing with a chain called Bar Bar, first in Liverpool and elsewhere. And it was about bringing together wonderful things happen when you bring interesting people together, and about bringing together interesting, creative people, and typically putting them in the same building and putting a bar or restaurant below so they could meet at and talk about things. Yep. So that, that wider cultural impact, um, I mean, we touched on this the other night um, over some food, this, this whole idea of um, taking an old building, um, something that's been, been overly neglected, and looking at transforming that. It's something that's typically seen as risky. Um, there's a lot of people steer away from trying to redevelop existing buildings, seen as a, a huge cost implication and the unknown. I mean, something that Urban Splash have got a, a bit of a reputation for is taking risks. Um, where does that instinctive nature come from? I mean, in some ways it's risky, in some ways it's not risky. It's all about risks about managing risk, isn't it? I mean, if you take it now with um, kids with health and safety, we all, when we were kids, climbed trees, and actually you climbed a tree and you went a very thin branch and you fell off and you hurt yourself, but actually you learned then not to climb the other tree. And for me, that's about actually managing risk, about taking risks, about sometimes failing and learning that rather than putting a bit a big fence around the tree with a sign do not climb which seems to me you're nothing and of course if you build a new building and if you build the same new building that lots of other people have built for many times you can actually cost that much more accurately than you can cost redeveloping an old building but it seemed to me one you were buying the buildings for a fraction of the cost to cost to replace them so there's actually very very little downside the first big building i bought i actually bought it from the auction and the story of that one is the owners had put it in, had applied to demolish it because it was worth more as a level car park than it was as a building. Mm. It was actually an old Victorian petticoat factory and quite an attractive building. And the planners, in their bravery, actually refused some planning permission with no grounds whatsoever because the guy could have just gone and demolished it if he wanted to and he was quite within his rights. It was his building. Um, but we bought it. And actually, we then developed it into managed workspace. And yes, we didn't know how much it was going to cost us. We didn't know what we were going to do. But we did it very, very cheaply. For about £20, $50 a square foot, um, we converted it. And in phases over two or three years, and basically just inhabited with people. And in there, we had people like 808 State, Simply Red, a load of music studios, a load of designers, a load of um, fashion people and lawyers and accountants feeding into those businesses and just started cr to create a, a collection of interesting people. And I suppose it's amazing now, because when you look back on it, it's now, it's still there, it's still the basic same building um, some 30 years later. 
And there must have been way over a thousand new businesses created from that one building. Um, what about, I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest challenges with that, I mean, a lot of the reasons creatives move into these places because they're cheap, cheap accommodation, flexible terms, you can expand and contract in a space, um, which is different to the, the, the market condition. Um, typically over time, those rents, you know, they're a victim of their own success sometimes. How do you, how do you deal with that kind of conundrum? Well, I mean, there's two or three things. And clearly, well, first of all, the space they go in there. Yes, the flexible terms is very, very important. But you can keep flexible terms the whole way through. It doesn't matter what the rents are. You can still be flexible. The mm. secondly, that is part of the reason of the space. The other part of the reason is actually the space is often a much better quality. When I say better quality, it's typically got um, taller um, ceiling, you know, floor-to-ceiling heights, bigger windows, None of these disgusting suspended ceilings, you know, everybody spends fortunes putting mm. in there. No raised floors that actually, by and large, you don't need now. So it's all about making the space breathe for itself, showing the original features. So part of it's quality of space, part of it's flexible terms. And then, yes, you know, the areas we started, when we started developing them, nobody else wanted to be around those areas. Um, and they were quite rough, quite edgy, quite demanding areas. And as time's gone on, they've become more and more central and more and more people wanted to move in there and the sort of businesses have been in there. And yes, the rents have gone up, which has been good for us. And people would argue it's been bad for the creative industries. But actually, what's actually happened in reality is they've moved to the next block. We started mm. developing buildings a mile or two further out of town. And in many ways, I think the creative industries are the vanguard of urban regeneration. And, you know, Covent Garden is a typical example in London that many of you will know. That was an industrial area. The industry moved out, the market moved out. First of all, it was inhabited by artists. Then it was inhabited by advertising agencies and creatives. Then it was inhabited by independent shops, then by mainstream shops, and then by you know, advertising agencies, and then by accountants. And some people see that as a very negative view. I'm actually quite happy with it because the artists then moved to Wapping or Shoreditch or uh, Hackney Wick or somewhere else. And actually, they are the vanguard of the urban revolution, and they help regenerate different areas. And I think you have to support them and help them do that. But I think cities aren't static. They are living, growing, changing organisms, and it's about actually feeding those organisms and changing them and supporting the change, rather than saying something's got to be the way it's always got to be. But I suppose coming on to that, this whole evolution of cities, I mean, the role of design in that, I mean, you've got a, an incredible portfolio um, of not only projects, but architects that you've worked with um, over the years. Now, you've worked with some of the most established ones. You've actually, I, I, would, kick, I would say, kick-started a lot of careers. Um, what's, what's been the learning experience for you? And what, I suppose, what advice? I mean, there's a lot of architects in the audience tonight. Um, what have you learned from that? What's some of the best and worst experiences? Well, I mean, we love working with good architects. And the most important job you do when you buy a site, well, probably the first thing you've got to do is you've got to have some sort of vision about what you want the site, what sort of use, what is going to be, what you vision for it. And then the next important thing, and the most important thing of all, is to pick the right architect. Because if you pick the right architect, everything else will follow. Um, and so we try to spend a lot of time and energy and effort picking the architect. And many developers are afraid of architects and they say that every architect or every good architect wants to make their um, life's project their big um, their big thing their life's vision with our money and that's absolutely true but actually that's a positive thing and I want to work with architects to do that 
because that's far better than working with journeyman architects who are simply after another job and simply going through the process. And clearly, you know, you want people like that. I want architects who are lying awake at night, whining about where the shadows are going to come in through the windows, whining about what the experience is of everybody walking into the building, whining about what the experience of people walking past the building. And those architects who are passionate about the building, who believe that actually the buildings are really important, are the people we want to work with. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and I think they make good buildings, and I think it's a joy to work with great architects. The other thing that you're... Um, I mean, I, I know so many architects in the UK who would seek out urban splash competitions. They knew it wasn't just a tick box. There was a there was a certain um, agenda and focus on design quality. What, I, to you, what's the, what's the importance of the design competition? And how can we use, utilize that a lot more? I, mean, I think design competitions is a great way of doing all sorts of things. You can't always do them because you can't always publicize them. But we've done a lot of design competitions. And we, do, and we do them for a number of different reasons. One, it's a fairly open process to actually discover new talent, discover people you've not worked with before. Um, secondly, you'll get a 100 different ideas about how to use a site, which are all interesting. Thirdly, we tend to use them as a device to bring in all the interested parties. So we'll, on the jury, we'll often have the leader of the council, English Heritage, the local residents association, people with an interest on the site. So you bring them inside the process rather than outside, so they're, they're part of the process. Um, and then you get a huge number of different ideas from different architects. Um, typically, we try to stratify those. So if it's a housing scheme, we might say, well, listen, who's done terraced housing? Who's done towers? Who's done um, individual um, detached housing? And you know, we go through a process of trying to find, well, rather than picking between six different towers, which is the best tower, which is the best terraced housing, which is the best high density, we try to always include one or two um, Mavericks, one or two wild cards in the shortlist, and then bring them in to the interview. And in the, in the interview, you're looking for all sorts of things. You're looking for passion. You're looking for somebody who's going to be really, really committed to the project, somebody who believes in the project, somebody, and you want to meet the person who's going to work on the project. You don't want to meet the head of the practice who's going to waltz in and waltz out. You want to meet the individuals who actually work on the project and who believe in it, who understand it. And you want to see some innovation, you want to see some practicality, you want to see some experience, and you want to see some enthusiasm and optimism. Now, speaking with an interest in, in teaching, is there anything you, you think is missing from the, the education of the architect just now in the design community? Is there something that you think is fundamentally flawed in the, the education of the architect? Well, I'm not an architect, so I'm probably not the best person to ask. I have no expertise. But I suppose... Um, I go to quite a few of these shows at the architecture schools. And what sometimes depresses me is you see so many students providing you these all amazing 3D renders of finished art centers, which are so complicated. And I, in a way, I'd rather see a very simple studio flat or a bedroom or something that's very, very simple that somebody's really thought about and done rather than just the clever... I mean, I think the computer, although it's a wonderful tool and we all use it, is actually got a lot to answer for. And it's, it's a bit like photography, isn't it? When we used to have film in our cameras and it used to cost us every picture we took and we had to focus it, you spent a lot of time thinking about what you're going to take and how you're going to frame it and what the settings were and what the shutter speed and the aperture were and the depth of field. And you took the photo and you waited to get it processed and it's expensive process and you got it. Likewise, architects 
when I started in business were hand drawing everything. It shows how old I am. But when you put a line on a piece of paper, you think very carefully about it. Because if you got it wrong, you had to tipex it out or scrape it out with a scalpel, and it took you ages to do that. And it meant that people were much more considered with what they were doing. And so, you know, in a way, of course, you need to know how to use CAD and 3D computers and fantastic. But also, I think to be able to draw freehand is very good. The other thing that I think is incredibly important is to build things. And I think that everybody in architecture school should go out for their summer holiday or something and either work on a building site or build a pavilion or build a shed in their garden or work with a building crew and actually work out how things go together, yeah. you know, work with joiners and work with builders and really understand that process. Now, I'll put one more question from me before I go to some of the questions that were emailed to me. But um, something I thought was really interesting from the, the lecture the, the other night, you talked about that very first project back in 1993 in Liverpool. Um, and you talked about having butterflies in your stomach as you approached that, that development. And you said, 22 years on, you've got butterflies again about your, your, your future projects, the modular housing. Could you touch on just what's the, um, the focus for Urban Splash in terms of a business going forward with the modular housing? Well, so 22 years ago, um, when we started Urban Splash, we started, myself and Jonathan, literally two men in a shed, and we saw all these old buildings lying empty, which were fantastic, you know, tall um, floor to ceilings, big windows, lying empty. We'd seen the films of lofts in New York, I've been to Barcelona, I've been to different places. Nobody was living in the city centre. And we thought something could happen, we could make people live in the city centre. And actually some people derided us and said we were almost evil, forcing people to live in the um, polluted city centres with no schools, no doctors, nowhere to buy a loaf of bread. But somehow we thought that, that might work, and there were those sort of butterflies in my stomach, the sense of excitement that we were onto something. And um, as Anne suggests, we've got the same thing at the moment. We're developing a system of modular housing. Um, and part of this was a, um, a result of the recession. Um, in prior to 2007, financing was incredibly easy. We probably borrowed a billion pounds from various different banks in the UK, which were all desperate to lend us money. And all of a sudden, 2007, the whole market finished, and it became almost impossible for um, developers, certainly working outside London, to get development finance. So we're thinking of different models, because if you build a great big building of uh, um, you know, 200 apartments, it costs you um, t um, 100 million pounds, which you have to raise and get the whole money before you sell a single apartment. But clearly, if you buy a single house, if you build a single house, it costs you about £100,000, and you can build one, sell one, so you can do it much less capital intensive. And so we started thinking about housing. The second thing that really struck me was that all the people who had bought our apartments, they ended up um, getting a few quid, earning some money, sometimes having kids, wanting to move a bigger place. None of them actually bought a new build um, house. They all went and built Victorian or Georgian terraces. And the first thing they did was knock all the walls down and put in contemporary bathrooms and kitchens. And the third thing that I saw was um, grand designs. Do you have grand designs in Australia? Yeah. yeah. Which everyone loves grand designs, eh? Yeah, we design your house. But you've got to be a millionaire to do it, haven't you? And it takes three years of your life and big arguments with the architects. And you know, it costs more than you think. It takes longer than you think. But people actually want to personalize things. Whatever you do, people want to personalize things, be individual. And so we sort of started working with this concept. And what we're doing is producing family homes, 1,500 square feet, which in England is over double of the average size. 
and it's built in factory and it's built entirely modularly using a timber cassette system but we allow people to go through a series of decisions so eventually they design the house so the sort of decision I'm talking about is you know, do they want two storey, do they want three storey do they want the living room on the ground floor with the bedrooms upstairs or do they want the living room upstairs with the pitch roof with the bedrooms downstairs do they want an entirely open plan or do they want it six bedrooms and going by going through a series of these questions people effectively design their own house in a very similar way that you buy a car nowadays you go into the showroom and actually you don't buy the car in the showroom anymore like we used to 20 years ago you go on the um app and you say do i want a convertible do i want a estate do i want a four door do i want a five door what color do i want it do i want a petrol do i want a diesel and so we hope to do the same thing with housing where people can actually come on the house or their house three months later gets delivered on site and they're ready to move into and hopefully you know i've got the same sort of butterflies in my stomach we've bought well we actually I used to say we built none we've actually uh built I think 11 or maybe 16 now since I've been another five since I've been in um, Australia for the week um, but it's 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 building up some momentum and we've got a number of sites we're looking at so I think it could be something that's quite exciting and do you think is that Tom something where your 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 strategy is about um, the supply chain and trying to reduce costs eventually I mean I know it's more expensive just now for you but yeah I mean at the, mo at the moment it, it, it's roughly the same price we're slightly dearer than the big house builders but actually, in the UK anyway, typically the construction cost is about a third of the total costs when you actually buy a house. Um, and yes, we think we can build up capacity. It must be better. You know, why are we still building houses out in the rain with a brick, a wet piece of cement, a brick, a wet piece of cement, a brick, the same way we've been building for the last 2,000 plus years? There must be better ways of building. It must be better to build in a factory. It must be better to do it in the dry. It must be better to use dry trades. It must be better to use the same people the same um, workers building it and getting better and better and better and what we want to do is go through the same process the car manufacturers have been so good at of actually improving and improving and improving um, as we go through different models and different phases and bring out new models and so we hope we can use modern methods of construction and modern methods of manufacturing to really improve the quality reduce the price because I think like in Australia in the UK we've got a huge problem of housing supply we're building around the UK 100,000 homes a year. We need 250,000 homes a year. The people building them are as a smaller and smaller group of bigger and bigger companies. And actually, I think there's a need for new entrants and um, a variety of different people to build homes. I'm just going to go to some of the questions that were sent through. Um, I mean, Dimitri Reid sent through a number, um, Ross Hansen, and a lot of them were talking about issues of affordability, which is a huge, huge um, problem and not only Melbourne but in Sydney as well um, so access to housing and getting on the, on the property ladder they were also asking specifically about um, Sheffield about your Park Hill estate in Sheffield um, now I'm curious about I mean that's a huge project to take on um, the scale of it also probably the stigma attached to it but what um, Dimity and, and Ros were asking about was what is the mix within that how do you how do you maintain um, a social mix within that context um, so Park Hill is an old, so, do you call it social housing? What do you call it in Australia? Um, public housing. It's an old public housing scheme built in the 1960s. In the 1960s, it was utopian. And um, the original architects had a view to, a very optimistic view. When it was built, um, the ward finished, rationing was finishing, the space race was on, science was sorting out all the world's problems, 
and the architects, a very, very young architect, employed by the local council, built this amazing scheme of a thousand homes. Um, look on the website called Park Hill. And he thought that it could cure, well, it could cure some of the world's problems or housing problems. And the people who moved in there loved it because they'd been living in slums without hot water, without bathrooms. They came into these amazing flats, and they are amazing. It's a very interesting plan, and you enter every third level. So basically streets on the sky. So every third story, you've got a street, and you walk in, and you either go upstairs or downstairs to your flat. And that means that every flat is a duplex, even one-bedroom flats. Every flat is double aspect. Every flat has got a south-facing living room. Every flat has got outdoor space, typically two or three balconies. So it's an amazing scheme. But like many social housing schemes in England, it went through a few years of, of very being very popular. And then slowly through lack of maintenance and through, in my view, bad tenant allocation, became worse and worse and worse. And eventually it was used to house short-term asylum seekers. There were problems of drug abuse, of antisocial behavior. And most people living there who could, voted with their feet and moved. Uh, there was a move to actually demolish the whole thing, but that got um, stopped by the count by being listed by English Heritage. And then the council had a competition to find a developer to actually um, regenerate it. Um, we were lucky or unlucky enough to win that competition and um, have been working on it for a number of years. Um, but it's an amazing project, and actually it's going to be very successful. And we've brought it back, we've reclad it, we've changed the image of it, we've done a lot of work with all sorts of things like art exhibitions, um, we've got the Arctic Monkeys to wear a t-shirt, we've made t-shirts Jutain Park Hill, I love Park Hill, because like Marmite, some people loved it, some people hated it, and we want to change the hate to the love. Um, we took it to the Venice Biennale, um, it got on the front cover of the design magazines in England, uh, the BBC made a documentary about it. So all sorts of soft marketing things. We brought the creatives in there. And now it's becoming, we're creating a whole new quarter of Sheffield, which we call the mid-century modern quarter. And rather than hiding the concrete, we're shouting about the concrete and celebrating it and bringing people back to live there. But, I mean, we're selling the apartments for £100,000 for one bedroom, 140000 for two bedroom. So it's being sold, um, you know, in my view, very, 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 very affordably. Um, some of the we've also promised all the existing residents who are still there and the people who are still there and um, we're very resilient actually and love living there and so we've promised them a brand new flat on the same terms as the old flats and we did that by working with the housing association with it so there's a variety and we all, some are for rent some are for sale some are social housing mm -hmm. some are shared ownership so a variety of different um, tenures to allow what hopefully be a very interesting mixed community one of the things about it is the common areas, the open space at the, at the, at the ground. I mean, that's a huge burden in terms of maintain, maintenance and looking after these spaces. I mean, is Urban Splash doing that? Is that something you manage? Well, we, whenever we do these things, it, it's called Park Hill because it is a, a park on the hill and there's a lot of open space and you've got to work out how to manage that. And we can't really afford to leave the Urban Splash because we won't be here forever, whatever mm. ever means. And so what we try to do is set up management companies where there's some income coming in, typically from um, service charges, from ground rents, sometimes from an initial dowry if we need to do it to get it going. And then we try to actually manage things so they're actually very cost effective to manage. And we um, you know, try to use interesting materials 
and um, we, on occasion we've actually employed our own park keepers, we've employed mm. a management company to look after them. So all sorts of different things, but it's actually about thinking about them, thinking about the long-term vision of who's going to look after them and making sure the funding's there so it doesn't deteriorate.